everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm thrilled to say I'm joined by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. Joe is here to help us unpack one of the bigger legal stories of the day, the last few weeks, and to talk about larger criminal justice themes. Joe, walk us through what is the topic today? Hello, Jessica. I'm happy to be here, but sad for the reason why we are talking about the death of a young man named Tyree Nichols. Nichols was a 29-year-old black man who died three days after a violent incident at the hands of the Memphis police on January 7th of 2023, just a few weeks ago. Memphis police say that Nichols was stopped for reckless driving, although local authorities later said that investigators, quote, have not been able to substantiate, end quote, that report of reckless driving. What we do know is that after being pulled over by police, a, quote, confrontation took place when officers attempted to arrest him after Nichols attempted to run away on foot. At some point, a second confrontation occurred after which Nichols was arrested. Late last week, police released four videos of the incident, including street surveillance video as well as body cam video views. These videos show officers tasing and beating Nichols with fists and batons while he was restrained, kicking him in the face while he was pinned to the ground by officers, as well as being repeatedly pepper sprayed. These beatings took place over the span of approximately three minutes' time. Once in police custody, Nichols complained about having a shortness of breath, and he was taken to the hospital and admitted in critical condition. Three days later, Nichols died in the hospital, and as of today, no official cause of death has been released. So what happened in the aftermath of this incident? A total of seven officers so far have been relieved of duty, with five of them being charged with murder. Notably, the five officers charged with murder and having been fired are black. They are Tadarius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Desmond Mills Jr., Emmett Martin III, and Justin Smith. A white officer who was also on the scene, Preston Hemphill, as well as another unnamed officer, have also been suspended at this point. Police eventually said that all seven officers were first suspended on the 8th of January, which was the day after the incident. A separate investigation by the Memphis Police Department announced earlier this week that a pair of department EMTs and a more senior officer were also fired. So, Jessica, let's talk about these charges. This is very complex. What were the specific charges filed, and what do they mean? Good question. We have a number of charges to discuss in this case. The first one is that the officers were charged with second-degree murder. And in Tennessee, that's basically a knowing killing of another. And one of the situations that can give rise to a charge of second-degree murder is essentially that the cumulative effect, I'm quoting from the statute here, the cumulative effect of the defendant's conduct was reasonably certain to result in the death of the victim, regardless of whether any single incident would have resulted in the death. So now for people who are listening and maybe even saw the video, they might be asking, why isn't this first degree murder? First degree murder in Tennessee, as in so many other states, refers to premeditated and intentional killing of another. In this case, the idea isn't that the police officers were looking for somebody to kill that night, but then instead, again, the cumulative effect of their actions should have been understood as reasonably certain to result in death. And that, frankly, based on the video, I think is 
what we see here. Now, there's some other counts, Joe, at issue. There are two counts of official misconduct. There are two counts of aggravated kidnapping, one count of official oppression, and one count of aggravated assault. Now, I want to just highlight one thing that you already talked about, which is so many parts of this story are really problematic and unusual. The traffic stop itself, really unusual. The police officers here were not in marked vehicles. They weren't wearing normal uniforms, and they weren't involved in typical patrol duty. They were part of one of these specialized units known as the Street Crimes Operations to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods, or Scorpion. And ironically, this is a unit that was intended to reduce violent crime and the number of violent, quote-unquote, hotspots in the city. So after talking about the charges, what are the potential penalties here? Well, just looking at the second-degree murder charge in Tennessee, that can result in 15 to 60 years in prison along with a fine of $50,000. Of course, there are also all of the other charges that we talked about. And Joe, I know you have a little bit more to say on the history of these special police units. Yes, Jessica, thank you. Specifically in terms of the Memphis Police Department, they referred to their special crimes unit as the Scorpion Unit. You said this acronym once before, but I'm going to repeat it because in some ways it's ironic. Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods is what Scorpion stood for. Now, the Memphis Police Department over the weekend disbanded its Scorpion Unit of which five of those officers who were charged with murder in Nichols, they belong to that Scorpion unit. And they disbanded that unit one day after the videos of the incident were made public. Now, Jessica, before we move on, similar units have been used by police departments for decades, and they are still being used to fight crime in many cities across the United States. One famous example, in 1999, officers from the New York Police Department's street crime unit shot Amadou Diallo, he was an unarmed student, shot him 41 times after he reached for his wallet. Officers at the time said they feared that he was reaching for a gun. Those officers were eventually found not guilty, although in 2002, the unit was shut down after federal investigators found evidence of racial profiling. Now, Jessica, about those videos that were released that got the Scorpion unit disbanded, I watched all four of those videos. This was a traffic stop. You yourself mentioned that before, and I mentioned it in the intro. So given that, given these charges, given the penalties that they're facing, what kind of defense do you think the lawyers will mount against these charges? Normally, I think the defense in these cases would be, well, the amount of force was reasonable. And I frankly just don't see a universe in which that's the case. Let's talk about what the police officers should have tried to do here. If there was a reason, they should have tried to handcuff Mr. Nichols. But this looks like it's about trying to beat him, not trying to handcuff him. Officers are supposed to use the lowest amount of force necessary to bring somebody into custody. And if you look at the videos or read about the videos, there are a number of blows to the head that are applications of deadly force. And Deadly force is an extreme measure. You're only supposed to use it if you have a reasonable belief that it's necessary and it's, in fact, immediately necessary in order to protect the life of the officer or another person. Basically, you have to reasonably believe that there's a threat of death or serious bodily injury and that there's no other option. 
of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it's important to remember you're only supposed to, as a police officer, or only enabled to use deadly force if there really is no other option. You think that you or somebody else is about to be killed or you or somebody else is about to be grievously injured. There's serious bodily injury. In this case, it looks like there are many opportunities to simply take Mr. Nichols into custody to put him in handcuffs. And the real issue here is they chose not to, Joe. And so that's a long way of saying, typically, the response would be that given the circumstances, that the amount of force was reasonable. I just don't see that in this case. Worthy of note here, Jessica, is that Nichols was unarmed throughout this entire span of events. One other thing I'd like to bring up here, Jessica, the reason we're talking about all these things is because there is video evidence. The Memphis Police Department did release those four videos late last week. Legally speaking, how could having so much video evidence change how the trials for these officers proceed? Well, we know that these videos can absolutely change everything, right? Can change the legality, can change the politics. I mean, I'm thinking back to Rodney King, and that was decades ago, but obviously I am from Los Angeles and I grew up in Los Angeles and I remember the outcry and I remember how different that story would have been of those police officers beating Rodney King if it hadn't been for the video evidence. And we saw that with respect to the George Floyd tragedy as well. So the videos really do change everything because there are some facts that are just not in dispute. Now, obviously the videos don't show everything, but in this case, they show a whole heck of a lot. This is not just body cam footage. And So the videos, I suspect, will be authenticated and will be introduced into evidence. And it's hard to imagine how it doesn't severely undercut the defense's potential argument here that the use of force was reasonable. I have to say, just in thinking about it and talking about it, Joe, I'm not entirely convinced that the video evidence doesn't lead some of the police officers just to try and take a plea deal because The evidence, again, it's really damning. And it's not just damning ethically and morally, it's damning legally. And if there is an offer on the table, it would seem to me to be a rational consideration to think about whether or not to take that because, again, in this case, a lot of the facts really actually aren't in dispute. Okay. And we will certainly keep all of our listeners updated as these trials proceed. I know it took nearly a year for that jury to find Officer Derek Chauvin guilty for the murder of George Floyd. But let's move on to more of the 10,000 foot view before we leave today, Jessica, and talk about the potential changes this may have to policing. This is not the first incident of this kind. The details of every one of them is different, but they have a big effect on our culture, and there are many, many discussions about police reform that take place every time one of these things happen. President Biden released a statement about the death of Nichols late last week in which he said, quote, Tyree's family deserves a swift, full, and transparent investigation of his death. Biden also addressed calls for police reform in the aftermath of yet another death of an unarmed black citizen, saying, quote, to deliver real change, we must have accountability when law enforcement officers violate their oaths, and we need to build lasting trust between law enforcement, the vast majority of whom wear the badge honorably, and the communities they are sworn to serve and protect, 
end quote. Vice President Kamala Harris attended Nichols' funeral in Memphis on Wednesday, and in comments to the congregation at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church, she said, quote, this violent act was not in the interest of keeping the public safe, as well as, quote, was he not also entitled to the right to be safe? The vice president also called on Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. That is a bill drafted to address police misconduct, the use of excessive force, and racial bias in police tactics. That bill failed to pass the Senate in 2021. So all of this leaves me to say, Jessica, what are the legal barriers to police reform? Police departments are municipal. So what can happen at the local level to change police tactics? And what about at the federal level? Biden himself said at a different time, quote, fund the police in his 2020 State of the Union speech. So what changes can be made locally, federally, legally speaking, Jessica, take it away. Yeah, I think the question, frankly, is really a lack of political will. As you said, there was a piece of federal legislation that was pending and the Senate didn't pass it. I don't see anything different happening with this particular House of Representatives. The Senate might be more inclined to pass police reform, but I don't think the House of Representatives that's dominated by Republicans right now, who I think have espoused very little appetite for this, um, would want to engage in maybe reforming the George Floyd bill or trying to think of something new. Obviously, there can be reform coming from the government, coming from legislation, but I also want to remark here that these actions already, I believe, were illegal. So yes, you can have lots of different laws and you can try and have laws to prevent this earlier, obviously, to make sure that this situation doesn't happen, not just because it amounts to second degree murder potentially, but also because it violates a whole host of other pieces of legislation. But I feel this way about so much wrongdoing, which is you can have all of the laws in the world and the best laws in the world. And frankly, I think what a lot of it comes down to is training and culture. And people do violate the law. We know this. We know that they violate the law every single day. And so in this case, I really think, yes, that's necessary. Reform is needed. But not just through legislation. Reform is also needed in terms of different training, different education, and different cultures in certain police departments. And I don't mean this as an indication that all police officers would engage in this type of behavior. I do not in any way believe that that is true, but clearly some reform is needed. And again, I think to view it as just a legislative path is wrong. I think we need to look at a holistic set of reforms here. Thank you very much, Jessica. I know that we will be following these trials as they proceed over the course of the coming months. And as always, you can find Jessica on social media at Levinson Jessica. She's on many different platforms. You can find me on social media at In-Depth Day and also at joearmstrong.com. Please rate, subscribe, review. We'd love to hear from our listeners and I hope everyone has a great day. 